Lord, what a wonderful time to gather, and uh, what a sweet message that you have given, and I just pray that you will move me out of the way this morning and speak to your people. Pray that you'll speak to hearts and change us from the inside out, and that in as a result of us laying our lives bare, that you will change marriages, you'll change relationships, you'll change work environments, you'll change um, just attitudes. Lord, I pray that the outcome of a message like this will be a people of joy and a people who are truly a people of wonder that grace could reach so low. Lord, I pray that you'll work that in us this morning. I also want to pray this morning for Greg Fields and for Westminster Pres and Presbyterian Church. We Pray for Greg right at this very moment as maybe he's beginning to preach. You're going to be preaching here in the next few minutes that you will speak in and through him. I pray that the word has undone him this week and that you have rebuilt him, re-engineered him with a message of uh, Christ crucified and risen. I pray that it will hit hearts and minds and people and will arrest them with the riches of the gospel. And that this church, this sister church here in town, First or Westminster Presbyterian, will be a people that are um, zealous for Christ and who are captivated with Christ and are truly savoring and enjoying Him. Lord, I pray that in whatever way that you show us how, whether it's tangible or not, that we have a true partnership with other churches like Westminster. and uh, We never entertain a spirit of competition, but it's a spirit of agreement and a shared Lord, shared gospel, shared cross, shared empty tomb, and a shared commission. Lord, we pray that you'll bless their time together this morning. Lord, we turn this time over to you for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> I usually get up on Sunday mornings really early because I have to. The message is prepared before Sunday mornings. I've never had a Sunday morning except last Sunday. Last Sunday the message was prepared that Sunday morning. It was really Keith's message that was kind of shared vicariously. It had been in the making for months, but... This, um, this morning, I got up early, and usually I have to get up early because I'm really having to kind of pray and get myself prepared. And this morning, I got up early because I wanted to come preach. I mean, I, wanted, I was wishing that we had multiple services. I, a few months ago, I said that we would never do that. This morning, I wanted multiple services just so we could have one that started at 8 and maybe even Saturday night. I've just been aching to share this message I feel like it's one of those messages that works from the inside out. I love preaching to the heart. It's easy to preach to symptoms and preach to don't do this or start doing that. But there's something about preaching to the heart that changes people from the inside out where your hand and your foot and your mouth change. Just the way you live and the way you love and the things that matter to you and the things that um, the way you spend your time, your priorities, all those things change from the inside out. This is one of those heart messages. So if you've come here this morning with marital problems, or you've come here with money problems, or friendship, relationship problems, or I don't know if I said money problems, I did say money problems, if you have double money problems, <laughs> I'm going to ask you just to put all that stuff aside. It's not that that stuff doesn't matter. It matters. I understand that. Man, marriage stuff can really be difficult, and that's right there at the heart of who you are. But even put that aside. And then just make an effort in these next few minutes to just lay your life bare. Lay your lives open to this book. And speaking of, you'll need this book this morning. We use it every Sunday morning, but if you're not engaging this book, if you didn't bring one, you have a new one 
It's the blue one sitting in front of you. You can put your name in it. You can mark in it. But use that. We're going to climb into this book and we will feast this morning. And I trust that if you're available and you're attentive, that the Lord will change you from the inside out. We're starting in John chapter 11. John chapter 11, verse 44. The man who had died came forth bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. This is a passage speaking about a man called Lazarus. It's a man that Jesus loved. He'd been dead for four days, and Jesus let him die so that he could be glorified through that. And then Jesus came to Bethany, and he raised Lazarus from the dead, a man who had been decaying and dead four days and unable to do anything about his situation. Christ called him forth from the tomb from death to life. Verse 45, therefore, because Christ called Lazarus from death to life, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Therefore, because Lazarus had been raised from death to life and because many people believed in Christ, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we doing for this man's performing many signs? If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Listen to what Caiaphas says. Nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Caiaphas unknowingly shared a prophecy right there, and one that was a prophecy about Christ's death and um, the impact of that death. And here's where John begins to comment on that in verse 51. John, the writer of the book of John. Now, he did not say this on his own initiative, Caiaphas didn't, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. And I will add in there, not adding to the word, I'm just amplifying, scattered abroad over space and time. That's you and me. So Caiaphas unknowingly is talking about us here 2,000 years later. So this passage is especially personal. What we've done these last few weeks is we've let this passage lead us on a journey where we've examined the sacrifice, where we've considered exactly what Christ did and how it was done and the impact of what he did. First of all, we considered that we, we looked through the lens of Leviticus, really a book that's all about death so that a holy God can dwell among an unholy people. Through the lens of Leviticus, we considered the work of Christ as being nothing less than death. He didn't come with some cash in hand. I think I'll purchase all these believers from the earth with some cash. He came with nothing less than warm, red, hemoglobin-carrying blood at the cost of his own life, that the nature of the sacrifice was death. And then the nature of the death, we considered the next week, the nature of the death was substitutionary. Again, looking through the lens of Leviticus, we realized that sacrifice in the Levitical picture, in the sacrificial sacrificial system picture, had to do with someone bringing a lamb or a bull or a goat, bringing it to the entrance to the tabernacle, placing their hand on the head of that animal, and then sacrificing that animal. That act of placing the hand on the head of the animal was saying, God, this creature is taking my place. This creature is my substitute. And it was a work of grace that he gave them the chance to have a substitute. Because if a holy God is going to dwell among unholy people, something's got to die. And the fact that he gave them a substitute was an act of grace. 
and that animal and that critter, whatever, whatever it might be, or that bowl of grain served as the substitute for that animal. And that Christ, in the work of the cross, essentially knelt down, bowed his head, and let creatures, us, put our hands on his head and essentially slice his throat and sacrifice him in our place. That the nature of the death was substitutionary. And then thirdly, we consider that the nature of the death was propitiary. That a holy God is angry at sinful man. And he's rightfully angry because he's just and he's holy and he will not contend with a man that's sinning. So what all, the, the only choice he's left with is to be angry and to have recourse. And that the work of Christ, this word propitiary may be a word you've never heard before. I encourage you to go back and listen to that message. It's not an academic brainiac word. It's a word in the Bible, and it means wrath-absorbing. That that's essentially, exactly what Christ did as he absorbed the wrath due us. A holy God is standing looking at me, and, and my, his wrath is something that I'm due, but Christ, as a substitute and as a wrath-absorber, steps in the way and absorbs the wrath fully that's due for me. And then a couple weeks ago, we began really a two-part message. This is part two this Sunday. But a couple weeks ago, we began to consider that the sacrifice, that that sacrifice of death was a perfect sacrifice. The things we considered a couple weeks ago, we began to look at a contrast between the sacrificial system and the cross of Christ through the lens of Hebrews. And here are a few of the things we came up with. First of all, that in the sacrificial system, that that work of that daily sacrifice is a shadow with substance being the finished work of Christ. We also considered that priests entered a mock-up of heaven. It wasn't a real heaven. Tabernacle, the tabernacle was a mock-up of heaven. That priests entered that mock-up of heaven by the blood of another. But that Christ entered the true heaven, the true throne room, by his own blood. And then third, we considered the busyness of the tabernacle and the sacrificial system and the coming and going. And some of the languages in Hebrews for this sacrificial system is that the offerings are daily, that they're time after time, that they're year after year, that they're day after day, they're continual. And contrast that against the work of Christ being once and for all time. His sacrifice was and is perfect. And today is part two of that message. It was really a message that we couldn't tackle in one Sunday. But part two, appropriately, is that his work was and is perfecting. His work was perfect, and his work was and is perfecting. Turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 9. Hebrews, chapter 9. A couple weeks ago, we read like three chapters of Hebrews and really bathed in the book of Hebrews. What I want to do in these next couple minutes is just read four or five verses from the book of Hebrews that capture the contrast that we're going to continue this morning where we're going to look at the perfecting work of Christ. Let's start in chapter 9, verse 9. Now, up to this point in chapter 9, verses 1 through 8, the writer of the book of Hebrews has been reminding the reader about the, even the layout of the tabernacle and of some of that system 
In the sacrificial system in verse 6, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. He's pointing back to that sacrificial system. And in verse 9, he says, both gifts and sacrifices are offered. You could take both gifts and sacrifices out and you could replace it with Leviticus. Leviticus is offered. Or the sacrificial system is offered and it cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. It cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience since it relates only to food and drink and various washings and regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. We're continuing our contrast between the sacrificial system and the cross of Christ. And in this case, we see from these passages that the sacrificial system, and look in chapter 10, verse 3, in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. In Leviticus, in the sacrificial system, there's a reminder of sins year by year. So with chapter 10, verse 3, and chapter 9, verse 9 and 10, what we walk away with is that the sacrificial system is a reminder of sin with a temporal remedy. Look at verse 10. Since this sacrificial system relates only to food and drink and various washings and regulations for the body imposed until the time of regulation, it does not fix the heart. It's a temporary remedy. Now, contrast that with Christ in verse 11. But, thank you for that three-letter word there, God. But, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, He entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of another, not through the blood of goats and calves, but through His own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal, that being a key word, eternal redemption. If the the work of the sacrificial system was a reminder of sin with a temporal remedy, the work of Christ and the cross of Christ is the remedy for sin with an eternal cure. That's why his work is perfect. And that's where it leads us into his work being perfecting. Now, as I've been bathing in these chapters, chapters 8 through 11 or so of Hebrews, there's a word that's come up a number of times and it's the word perfect. And then it's related words. The flip side of that word is imperfect. And another word is the word conscience. And another word is worshiper. So that's where I want to go next is contrasting the imperfect worshiper with the perfected worshiper. Let me coach you here for a moment. I realize that if you're really, really not in tune this morning, that there's a potential for, this, for you to get lost in this. I want to urge you to just focus Beg the Lord for a divine attentiveness because what you're about to see, if you're attentive right here, will rock you. It will bless you and it will rock you and it will surprise you. Okay, first of all, chapter 9, verse 9. The sacrificial system, both gifts and sacrifices, are offered which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. Okay, the sacrificial system, the worshiper, even if he meant well, even if he was consistent, even if he was good about making his sacrifices, he was not made perfect in conscience. Okay? Look at verse 10, or chapter 10, verse 1. 
For the law, that's another word for the sacrificial system or the way they're used kind of interchangeably here. For the law or the sacrificial system or Leviticus, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make perfect those who draw near. That the sacrificial system, the thing that the nation of Israel had for 1,500 years could never perfect the worshiper, even if they drew near. I don't know what that sounds like to you, but it sounds like sincerity to me. That sounds like a worshiper that's pretty sincere who wants to draw near. And here's the point. It doesn't matter how sincere you are. Sincerity does not perfect you. You can be sincere and go completely in the wrong direction. And the nation of Israel was going in the right direction as God had revealed it to them. And they were sincere, but they were still not perfected. The worshiper wasn't. But then in Christ, look at chapter 9, verses 13 and 14, paying special attention to 14. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling, you could almost replace that with Leviticus. If Leviticus... Those who've been defiled, sanctified for the cleansing of the flesh. If faithfulness to the book of Leviticus, if faithfulness to the sacrificial system cleanses the defiled and sanctifies them in the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? First of all, the perfected conscience of the perfected worshiper is cleansed from dead works to serve the living God. Look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1 and 2 again. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make perfect those who draw near. We've already considered that. But here in verse 2, otherwise, if it had made them perfect... If the good Jew who was faithful to the sacrificial system had been made perfect, would those sacrifices not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sin? So if you're paying attention, I know this is hard work. It's hard preaching this. It's hard trying to communicate this. But here, let me, let me summarize this for you so far. The perfected worshiper and his or her conscience... First of all, they are cleansed from dead works through the work of Christ. Their conscience is cleansed. Second of all, from this passage, cleansing means that they have no consciousness of sin. Does that mean that they're just oblivious to sin in their life? No, it doesn't mean that. We know from other passages, like in James, it says, confess your sins one to another so that you will be healed. You have to have an awareness of sin for that. We know from 1 John that we are to confess our sins to the Lord for he, is, he will make us clean and he's faithful and righteous to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's not talking about having a complete oblivious attitude towards sin. It's that you're not left with just a consciousness of sin. You're not sitting there going, oh, I, I, all I am is sinful. There's something more. The perfected conscience means that you're not left with just an awareness of sin. There's something else that completes the picture. Now look at chapter 10, verse 14. For by one offering, 
That's the work of Christ. By one cross, by one Christ, He has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. So the imperfect worshiper is left with a consciousness that has to do with dead works and a reminder of sin and a constant awareness of sinfulness and really no eternal remedy to fix that. But in Christ, in Christ, that worshiper is perfected and their conscience along with them by one offering, by one cross, and by one Christ. His cross perfected the worshiper. Now... If you've been paying attention, which I know is kind of difficult, it's a challenging message this morning. It's going to come clear in a moment. I trust that it is. But hang in there. If you've been paying attention, you may be thinking, well, what is perfection exactly? You know, if I've been perfected in Christ, I mean, I I raised my voice at my wife this morning. No, I didn't. Christy's out of town. But you may be thinking that. (laughs) You might be thinking that. I'm not perfect, so that really can't apply to me. This is not speaking of moral perfection. You need to understand that. Hebrews chapter 2 says that Christ was perfected through sufferings. Christ was never imperfect when in regards to his moral perfection. It means that Christ was completed in his suffering. He was completed in fulfilling what the Father had sent him to do. So the word perfection means completion. So the worshiper that we've been talking about right now, the one that's worshiping in Christ, is completed in Christ. They are perfected in Christ. Think of the word consummation. They are completed and fulfilled in the work of Christ. I have a little image to help you with here. The Old Testament worshiper, the Leviticus Jew, the one who was faithful for 1,500 years to the Levitical sacrificial system, was a glass partially full. Or you might consider it a painting partially done. Or you might consider it a song partially written but incomplete. It's hard to look at a painting partially done or a song partially done and say that's perfect because it's not perfect until it's completed. This is imperfect, but it still has some substance there, doesn't it? In order for it to be perfect and complete, you got to have this as part of that. It takes this to complete that. It takes a, a partially completed painting to add up eventually to a completed painting. A partially completed song before the song is completely written. So the picture of Leviticus with the partially completed, imperfect, incomplete worshiper is necessary for the complete worshiper. You remember the purpose of the Leviticus sacrificial system was to make a distinction between the holy and the unholy. You can't get here to be the completed worshiper until you've made that journey to the tabernacle, to experience what it means, the difference between the holy and the unholy. This is incomplete. This is imperfect. This is complete. And this is perfect. Okay? Now, here's my favorite part of this message. Turn to the book of Leviticus chapter 4. Oh, this is what I've been aching to share These last few days, this is what woke me up. This is what made it hard to go to sleep. Is this next few moments that we're going to spend together. Leviticus chapter 4 
is the portion of Leviticus that explains how the sin offering is to be conducted. And what I want to do in these next few minutes is I want us to become a guy named Jacob. We're going to become really truly ethnic there, and we're going to be Jacob. Okay, we'll be Jacob for the next few minutes, a good Jew, somewhere embedded within that 1,500 years of the sacrificial system, a Jew that likely, we'll say Jacob was around when, when, when the Ten Commandments were given to Moses. We'll say Jacob was around to see Sinai quake. We'll say that Jacob was in Egypt and was led. He saw the, the sea part. He knows that God is real, and he wants to please this Yahweh God that he's serving. Okay, we're going to become Jacob here for the next few minutes. Now, I want you to consider this in chapter 4, verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, or, and Moses saying, Speak to Jacob and the other sons of Israel, saying, Jacob, if you sin unintentionally in any of the things which the Lord has commanded you not to do, and if you commit any of them, or if the anointed priest sins so as to bring guilt on the people, then Jacob... You are to offer to the Lord a bull without defect as a sin offering for the sin he has committed. Okay, so Jacob, let's go back to Jacob. Let's imagine that Jacob, again, he wants to please God, but he's still quite human. He has a wife and kids, and let's say that one day he raises his voice at his wife. Or let's say he exasperates his children. Or let's say he deals unfairly with a neighbor in the purchase of an animal from his herd. And it's unintentional. Let me make a little side note there. There's no provision in the sacrificial system for intentional sin. That has nothing to do with this message. It's just too true and too awesome to pass up. There's no provision for in your face, God. I don't fear you. I'm going to sin in your face. There's only provision for unintentional sin. So let's say Jacob, who desperately loves the Lord, finds out, oh, I have wronged a holy God in the treatment of my wife or the treatment of my children or the treatment of my neighbor. I have sinned, and I must make provision for that. I must make it right with the holy God. So he goes out to his herd, and he finds an animal, a bull, the best of the herd, the finest and unblemished bull. He, before he goes out there, he asks his wife, wife, Sarah, whatever her name might be, Jewish name. Jacob asks Sarah, hey, will you... He takes a bath, he puts on his nice Sunday duds, and he says, hey, will you check me out and make sure I don't have a runny nose? Make sure I don't have a gecko on my back? Make sure I don't have any open sores that are oozing that would keep me from going to in fellowship and engage the living God? And Sarah says, okay, Jacob, you look pretty good, all right? Carry on. Jacob gets his rope, he goes to get the bull, he puts the rope around the bull's neck, and he leads that bull off to the tabernacle. Let's imagine that Jacob lives about two miles away from the tabernacle. Let's imagine that Jacob is walking down a dusty road toward the tabernacle and he passes the camp of Benjamin. And he sees Benjamin out in his fields working. And Benjamin, Ben-Hamin, sees Jacob and their eyes meet. And Ben-Hamin knows where Jacob is going. He's got a big, beautiful, unblemished bull that he's leading. And he's heading toward the tabernacle. And Benjamin looks at Jacob. There goes Jacob again. And Jacob drops his head in shame. Because everybody knows where he's going. He passes Yahshua's 
camp and Joshua sees him. He passes Yosef's camp. He passes David's camp. He passes Nathaniel's camp and they all see him and their eyes meet and Jacob looks down in shame because he's doing the walk of shame to the tabernacle with a beautiful unblemished bull. Everybody knows where he's going. And on the way, while he's dealing with shame, he's thinking about the life of this animal. He's got a rope tied around this bull. He's thinking about the value of this animal to his herd. And he's thinking about the life in that animal as he hears, hears it snort, as he hears it breathe, as the hair of the animal bumps against his leg and his hip, and he feels the life of the animal. All those things he's feeling as he walks to the tabernacle. And then in verse 4, He shall bring the bull to the doorway of the tent of meeting before the Lord, and he shall lay his hand on the head of the bull and slay the bull before the Lord. You can imagine what, what Jacob is thinking. Remember, he saw Sinai quake. He saw the Red Sea part. He knows that he's about to fellowship and engage with the living God. He's about to attempt to make right with the living God. And you can imagine as he's placing his hand on that animal that he's realizing, this is my substitute. Thank you, God. And as he slits the throat of that animal, as the blood gushes out, he realizes that the life of that animal is ebbing out and it should be him. But he appreciates, Lord, thank you so much for this substitute. Then the anointed priest is to take some of the blood of the bull. I don't know how they did it. Maybe they had a cup, gathered it. It's hard to envision them picking up the bull, pouring out his blood, but he's gushing blood at this time. This bull is dying. The anointed priest is to take some of the blood in the bull and to bring it to the tent of meeting. And the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle some of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. And the priest shall also put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense, which is before the Lord in the tent of meeting. Jacob's watching all this. And he's read this. And he's saying, well, I hope they get it right. I hope they get it right and we don't all die right here because we're doing it wrong before a holy God and because we're unholy. I hope my priests do a good job of this. And the priests put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense, which is before the Lord in the tent of meeting. And all the blood of the bull he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering, which is at the doorway of the tent of meeting. Don't you know that's a lot of blood in a bull? Don't you know there's not a cleaning crew in the tabernacle that comes in there at night and polices up all the blood? Don't you know that that's going on every day in the tabernacle? This place was gruesome. This place was bloody. All that blood from all those sacrifices, day after day, year after year, continually, could not make the worshiper perfect. All that death and all that blood. And then he, Jacob, shall remove from it, from the bull, all of the fat of the bull, of the sin offering, the fat that covers the entrails, and all the fat which is on the entrails, and the two kidneys with the fat that's on them, which is on the loins and the lobe of the liver, which he shall remove with the kidneys, just as it is removed from the ox of the sacrifice of peace offerings. And the priest is to offer them up in smoke on the altar of burnt offering. But the hide of the bull and all its flesh with its head and its legs and its entrails and its refuse, that is, all the rest of the bull, Jacob, is to bring out to a clean place outside the camp where the ashes are poured out, and burn it on wood with fire. Where the ashes are poured out, it, it shall be burned. Okay, Jacob has made his sacrifice. He's 
gone through the process. Who knows how long this takes? You think about all the details of that. How long must that take? If he's walking at three miles an hour, it's going to take 40 minutes to get to the tabernacle. And then how much time there at the tabernacle? Is there a line? Are there a bunch of other Jacobs and Yosefs and Benjamin standing there making sacrifice too? How much time did it take? But he completed his sacrifice. He even took the entrails and the skin outside the camp and he burned those up. He followed the rules. And then Jacob begins his walk home in silence. The walk home that was made only maybe a couple hours before with the life of an animal, hearing it snort, feeling its life bumping into his hip and his leg. He walks back experiencing gratitude, first of all. Thank you, Lord, for giving me, by grace, giving me the opportunity to have a substitute, by grace, giving me the chance to make right with you. But then that gratitude turns into a walk of wonder. Not a walk of wonder, like wonderful, but a walk of, I wonder. I wonder if I'm right with God now. I wonder if I need to go back. I wonder if I need to stop at my neighbor's house and buy a lamb. I wonder if I need to go pick up some grain. I wonder if I'm truly right before a living God. Maybe there's a gecko on my back. Maybe somebody sneezed on me on the way here. Or maybe somebody just sneezed on me and I didn't even know it. He begins that walk home the whole time wondering, have I truly satisfied God? Is it ever going to be enough? And if by some crazy chance... He thinks, okay, he's able to reconcile. Okay, I guess I'm good with God, at least for the moment. You can't help but wonder if you can become Jacob for for a few minutes. When am I going to have to go back? How long is it going to be before I raise my voice at my wife? Or before I exasperate my children? Or before I deal unfairly with a friend or a neighbor? How long is it going to be before I have to go back? That's Jacob. That's the imperfect conscience. How long is it going to take? There's a distinction between me and a holy God. And this is hard work. I'm grateful for the work. But it's hard work. Will I ever be perfect? Will I ever be right with a holy God? That's the imperfect conscience. Now, let's take Jacob again. Jacob heirs. Man, bummer. Jacob heirs. At home, he raises his voice to his wife or his kids or he deals unfairly with a neighbor and he realizes he sinned. And he says, okay, I need to go get an unblemished bull for my flock, for my, for my, flock, for my herd. I go out there, I find a gym dandy, put a rope around his neck. Only after I've had a bath and Sarah's inspected me, any oozing wounds, okay, cool, I'm off. Takes a bath, he's on his way to the temple or the tabernacle, leading that bull, filling the life of the animal as he goes. He passes Ben-Hamin's camp. He passes Joshua's camp, Yosef's camp. He passes Nathaniel's camp, all the while walking the walk of shame because everybody knows where he's going. He goes to the tabernacle. He meets Aaron there or whoever, one of the Adab, Abihu, Nadab or Abihu, one of, the, one of the priests there. He hands them the rope. He puts his hand on the head of the critter. And he slices his throat. He goes through the same process. They sprinkle the blood where they're supposed to sprinkle it. He skins the animal. He quarters the animal. They burn the animal up. He takes the skin and the entrails outside the camp and he burns them up. 
And then he begins his walk home, the same process. Begins with gratitude. Thank you so much for giving me the sacrificial system. But that turns to the walk of wonder. I wonder if I've done enough. And then, let's take Jacob out of that context. Let's take Jacob on, from that side of the cross and pick Jacob up and place him this side of the cross. Let's take the same guy who has a clear awareness of his sin and his wretchedness. And let's introduce Hebrews 10, 14. By one offering, by one Christ, by one cross, Christ has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Let's say that Jacob is walking home and by grace and by mercy, Jacob becomes acquainted with that reality and with that truth that Christ finished the system. He completed it. He perfected it. And he perfected Jacob in the work. And here's how it hits Jacob. Jacob says, no more bulls. No more lambs, no more doves, no more grain, no more shame walks to the tabernacle. No more hanging my head as I walk by Ben-Hamin and Yosef and Nathaniel. No more hand-placing, throat-slicing, skinning, quartering, washing, and burning sacrifices. And no more quiet, wandering walks home where you have to wonder, did I do enough? Jacob, his wandering walk home, turns to a true walk of wonder. I wonder how grace could reach so low. And in fact, it turns from a walk to a skip and to a run as his walk where he's wondering, have I done enough, turns to a joy, jump, a dance of jubilation and celebration, and elation, and completion, and wonder, and marvel, and delight, and worship. And that's where Jacob has gone from being the incomplete to the complete worshiper. That's where Jacob has been perfected. It took this to get there. This is part of that. But he's been completed. Who completed it? Christ completed the work. And Jacob will never be the same. His motives have changed for everything. Now he works no longer to please God, but now he works because Christ pleased God. He wants to serve with reckless abandon now, not to earn salvation or rightness before God, but because of salvation and rightness before God. Motives matter to God. If you're serving Him in this motive, it's no service at all to Him. The service to God is the perfected conscience. I'll leave you with one verse. Turn back to Hebrews chapter 9. I want you to see this. Motives matter so much to God. He's given us a clear picture of this right here. Hebrews chapter 9. Verses 13 and 14. We've seen it already, but I want you to see it now, this side of Jacob. Having walked with Jacob and made the sacrifice, and having walked with Jacob on the way home, wondering, have I done enough? When am I going to have to go back? 
wondering, am I really right before a holy God? But now making that second walk with Him that's no longer a walk, but a dance of jubilation and celebration. Listen to this passage. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 13 and 14. If the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who've been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? What you need to realize... I, I, I'm not going to dismiss us until we get that. We stay here till 6 this evening if it takes us to get that. I got attention now because people say, man, I got, I got stuff to do today. <laughs> listen, listen to this. The blood of Christ cleanses the conscience from dead works to serve the living God. That's what serves the living God is a cleansed conscience from dead works. That serves him and ministers to him because it's Christ's blood that the worshiper is bathed in. A worshiper, if you claim Christ as your Savior and Lord, yet you think you've got to earn or add to your salvation, that is an affront to the living God. It says that the work of Christ wasn't enough. But if you can make that second trip home with Jacob and see that finished work of Christ where your conscience becomes completed, perfected, you realize that's what serves God. You want to serve God? Trust wholly and completely in the saving, warm, life-giving, life-ebbing blood of Jesus Christ and a finished work on a cross and an empty tomb. That serves the living God. That's the perfected conscience. I'm going to end with an um, email I got from a church member, Crosspoint member, a couple weeks ago, after the part one of the work of Christ was perfect, and here's what she said. I'm not going to name her by name. I asked for, for permission to do this. You don't have to worry. If you ever send me an email, I'm going to read it publicly. I'll, I'll ask you permission. But then I'll do it anyway. <laughs> no, not really. I have to say that it wasn't that long ago where I didn't feel worthy of salvation. And I was questioning if I was truly saved. And how can I know for sure? And that does still seep into my mind sometimes. There was always the feeling of not being good enough and trying to think of something I could do for him or something I could say to him. Something that would make it right. She, she goes on to say, I could never just be. She said, lately, however, I've been realizing what it means to have assurance. You hit the nail what are we to do? Basically, to rest in Him. I could never do that before, but I'm learning to now. But to rest, to be at peace, to rejoice and enjoy Christ's sacrifice, His once and for all sacrifice, to enjoy His security, knowing full that because we believe in Him, that our home will be and is with Him. Oh, what a joy! What deep and utter joy that no one can take away and no one can snatch away from us. I'm so humbled, she goes on to say, and so blessed that I have a substitute that will absorb the wrath that was meant for me. Oh, what a wretch I am to have put my dirty, slimy hand on Jesus' precious and innocent head so that I may live. 
My salvation is a precious gift, and I will not take that for granted. That's a completed conscience. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, it is my burden. It is my burden that you will take a difficult truth and that you will find a people that are eager for it, that are hungry for it, that are thirsty for it, and that it will find purchase in hearts and that it will give rise to true life and joy and jubilation and celebration that comes from the finished work of Christ and trust in His work that it was enough. Lord, I pray that we will be a people that walk with Jacob home, that we take this sweet message back to our Sarah or to our neighbors or to our friends and we tell them to put the herds to the field. Set them free or make pets of them, but we no longer need to make a sacrifice for salvation. Lord, I pray that we will be a people that are so satisfied in the finished work of Christ that that's what fuels us and that as a result of that, you will see a busy people, but we are busy with the right motives in response to a finished saving work. Lord, collectively today, we count his work sufficient. That one sacrifice we count as enough. In Christ's precious name we pray. Amen.